Startup Grind Columbus is a monthly event to educate and inspire entrepreneurs. We actively live Startup Grind's global community values of give first, help others, and make friends. Startup Grind Columbus is made possible by our lead partners, AWH, builders of exceptional digital products that drive business for growth companies and Rev1 Ventures. Visit startupgrind.com slash Columbus to see a list of upcoming events and to see videos from our past events. Now, on to this month's event podcast. I'm Ryan Frederick. This is Startup Grind, where we have a conversation with an entrepreneur, investor, advisor, someone important to the startup ecosystem. And uh, we have that tonight, certainly, with Bill. Got to thank some sponsors, Rev1, for letting us come and, and do this and hang out here once a month, uh, typically the second Monday of every month. Alex Brown from Dickinson Wright is uh, a sponsor, so if you need to talk to someone about legal stuff, grab uh, Alex and his team at Dickinson Wright, and they can help you. GBQ, Heartland Bank, Daryl was here earlier um, from King Memory. They've also sponsored for the last two years in our firm, AWH. We're a digital products firm. We help clients build digital products and to get better at building their own digital products. With uh, that said, please help me welcome Bill Forker. So we actually first met when I reached out to you cold, like five years ago, maybe, and said, hey, we're going to do this gamification thing. It was actually in this room, as I recall now. Um, and I think I did a LinkedIn search on people that were doing game stuff in Columbus. You came up as, as a game theory person. And I figured, all right, well, that sounds sort of cool. And that's sort of close to gamification. So let me reach out to him. You said, yes, we did the thing. Um, and it was it was it was a cool little session, um, and then we've seen each other and around town, and have known each other since then. Um, so thanks for coming and doing this. Oh, it's great, and that was also sort of my pet peeve that gamification and game theory are not the same two things, right? They couldn't be more different, and um, th that ended up being uh, that ended up being the topic of the presentation uh, at a gamification conference is to tell people, don't make the silly mistake that game theory has anything to do with that. Even though they both have game in them. Even though they both have games. Yeah, so right? seemingly they would be similar, yes. uh, but not so. And now further complicated, if you go to a conference on you know, game development, just like what Athens hosted here recently, um, it's even, the language is even more confusing. So there's, and there's actually a pretty big game conference coming up in Columbus, GDEX, um, I think in October, um, somebody, if somebody knows it. And so are you speaking there on game theory? No. No, you, <laughs> but you should be, be, you know, because it's a game conference. No, no. Game theory is part of games. No. Right? It's different. Um, you don't talk about game theory anymore? I do. Okay. Um, so we're also here, um, it's 9-11, so I don't want to make too much of a, uh, of a big deal about it. But you said that you had, when we chatted last week, you said you had an in interesting 9-11 story that you thought you, people might find interesting. Well, you know, I think it's important to stop and recognize that uh, that was an important day for all of us. And um, everybody remembers where they were, who they were with, how they felt uh, that day. So, uh, yeah, I'll just, I'll give you a, a, a glimpse. Uh, I was in Washington, D.C., uh, but out by Dallas Airport, not near the Pentagon or anything like that. Uh, we were doing due diligence on a company we were, gonna, uh, we were considering acquiring. Um, we were working in the hotel uh, that day. We had all the docs and info we wanted, and um, just uh, were reviewing all the material. We were going to go to... Uh, lunch to review everything and then fly out that afternoon and then you know all heck breaks out and we're watching the images just like everybody is and it's horrific and um, and then Dulles Airport closes and then all flights grounded and sitting there looking at each other like well what are we gonna do here right we don't I don't really want to sit here in Washington suburban Washington DC and um, 
Shortly thereafter, and we're all worth a Canadian company, so we all had Blackberries at the time, and um, the CEO sends out this email message to every employee that says, all employees are authorized to get home using any means possible. And uh, so we're looking at each other and said, well, we've got a budget running car, right? But it was only supposed to go between the airport and the hotel and the client, but... And uh, so I suggested, let's just take our budget rent-a-car and leave. And I was with two finance guys and a legal guy. And, you know, finance guys, by definition, are rule followers. They wouldn't be good finance guys if they weren't rule followers. And, of course, Stan, the finance guy, says, well, I'll just call budget and see if it's okay if we do that, right? <laughs> Stan, no. <laughs> This email from your CEO, right, just authorized you to use any means to get home, and that includes stealing our budget rent a <laughs> which we did. And uh, they were all from uh, Canada, so we drove as far as Pittsburgh. I got dropped off. They headed due north, across the border. I, my wife came, picked me up. Nine o'clock the next morning, we have an all-hands... Um, conference call. Uh, we probably had six, seven hundred employees in the company at the time. And the CEO was bound and determined. He had a list of every employee. And he wanted personal verification that every employee was accounted for. So it was sort of like a MVP for Mark Me Safe and Facebook, right? I mean, it was, he, w he was going down and wanted, so came to me and uh, he's in what? No, I'm, I'm, I got back. I'm okay. Everything's fine. Well, what about those guys? Who, well, you know, I don't know. I left them in Pittsburgh, and I'm <laughs> not sure. Five minutes later, Stan, who's probably still quite jittery over the fact that he stole this budget rent-a-car, um, walks in. He hadn't been home. It took him all night to cross the border. Um, and, uh, but he says they're, 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 you know, they're there, and he was actually in the main conference room. And not more than five minutes later, right, it came out that there were two guys from Washington, D.C., right, that were in our corporate headquarters that had no way to get home. Well, Stan ch chimes up, oh, hey, I got a rental car you could take. And, um, and ten minutes later, they were on the road, headed back home. Um, so, uh, courtesy of Budget Rental Car, uh, everybody... Everybody got home to where they where they wanted. So that's my that's my memory from from uh, from 9/11, <clears throat> and a lot of that was not on TV. A lot of my memory of it was listening to it on the radio, just like baseball. You know, TV and and radio experiences are completely different, and so that's what I remember is listening to the radio for on on 9/11. So anyway. My probably the oddest car, car trip that you, you've taken, right? Because you're, you're, I'm sure while you guys are driving, you're still trying to figure out what's going on, right? And you're, you're taking in the information that you're hearing on the radio and still trying to sort of piece it together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was quite surreal. And um, uh, the attorney, Sheldon, that was in the room, I spoke to this morning. We chat every 9-11 because it was such a shared experience for us, uh, for us both. So. Yeah, cool. Thank you for that. Um, so now we'll transition to talking about company building and, and all of the sort of facets and, uh, and experience that you've had associated to that. So um, you're a big strategy guy. Um, that's what you do now. Um, and, you know, game theory is really is, is based in strategy, right? Um, and so when you think about company building, as we talked before, you, re you really are sort of wired and you think others should be thinking about the, thinking with the end in mind, right? Wh where, what are they trying to accomplish? Where are they trying to go? And then what is the most direct path to get there? And I'll let you expound on that and, and add your color. Yeah, so if you've ever just conversationally says, what's your end game? You're really using a technical term out of game theory. If you've ever said uh, that's a zero-sum game, 
you're actually using a technical term out of game theory. So it makes its way into everyday, you know, everyday language. Um, you know, I, I like to try to keep things really simple because I think it supports having much more productive conversations with your team, whether it's with your employees or your, uh, your investors or your board or whoever that would be. So for me, strategy is really simple, right? It's the confluence of your external environment and your internal capabilities, right? And so as you think about strategy, Right? You need to execute on both of those. You need to be able to execute internally, build product, win customers, do the MVP, figure out your messaging, test your messaging, um, raise money if required, all of those things that are required sort of on the internal, on the internal side. Um, and that's very, very all-consuming. Um, and sometimes what gets left behind is a proper reflection on the external environment. And, and in particular, trending whether your external environment is, has become more favorable, less favorable, or no change in the last, since the last time that you sort of assessed that, maybe on a quarterly basis if you're, if you're doing a board meeting. So uh, you got to build the company. That's sort of a prerequisite. You got to have a clear strategy, and that strategy has to involve a clear understanding of what the external environment looks like. So what is the driving, you know, what's the macro economy? What is the driving force within the market segment? You know, what's the priority of this particular problem set you're trying to solve within, you know, those target customers, uh, and so on. So when you think about an end game for a startup, if you take investor money, by definition, the end game is you've got to return invest, you've got to try to return money to those investors. So your strategy, your end game scenario sort of gets written for you. If you don't take investor money, you actually have way, way more flexibility because you're not so driven to a liquidity event, right? So a lot of people think, I gotta go raise money, and that's sort of a panacea to solving all your, all your ills, and it's not. It's just gonna make your life way, way more complicated, and it really limits your one, you now really only have one end game scenario, and that's a liquidity event. So if you don't raise money and you're funding, um, if you're bootstrapping or you're funding through revenue and, and customer acquisition, it, should you still be focused that much on the end game and what your, what, your, what your ultimate outcome is? Should you still put that sort of end game pressure on yourself and on the, on the company? Yeah, I would, I would say so. But if your end game is, I want to comfortably run a lifestyle business for the next 20 years, that's quite okay. And that's a perfectly, perfectly legit and great end game scenario. And that scenario is off the table if you make a decision to take somebody else's money. <clears throat> so we, we are both principally bootstrappers and, and not go out and seek investment. And if you can fund it yourself um, to do that or through customers, um, when you think about and when you when you talk to people about funding, the environment right now seems to be most people pursue funding um, as sort of the 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 first out of the gate act. I've got to go raise money. How do you get people to to think not about the first act as I've got to go raise money, but I've got to go validate I'm solving a problem that enough people care about that this warrants the time and energy of actually doing this. Yeah, right. So, um, and I'm, I'm a member of OTAF, so, um, and, you know, fairly, fairly active. But when, you know, I, I always, always try to help an entrepreneur. If you can, if you can bootstrap on your own, whether you're moonlighting, whether you're doing it off of revenue, whether you're doing it with some revenue and some side hustle, um, that, that is just going to provide you 
so much more options. Um, when you defer raising money, if ultimately you even do, your money is going to be better spent. It's going to end up being more targeted because you're still not in such an iterative process of trying to find your way of, of where you're actually going to land, right? Um, so, it, it, yeah, it is sort of a badge of honor, right? And Shark Tank sort of... Um, you know, glamorizes that in uh, in some way, but that's that's not where you want to be, right? Um, if you've done all the, I'm not saying don't do it. If you've done all the right things, if you've achieved validation, if you've put customers and traction on the board, and now you think you're in a foot race, right? That you're better positioned than anybody else, and if you continue to execute sort of organically that the market is going to catch and pass you by, that's when it makes a ton of sense to be thinking about taking, taking money. But that's pretty far down the path. So if you, if, if you are in a business that, you, that, you, that is like that, there's a, there's a window of opportunity. You've got you've to go pretty fast to capitalize on that. Um, it, it, but someone isn't, right? And, and we sort of see this where there are companies and there are founders that are sort of okay, just sort of lumbering along, right? And, and seven years later, they're not that much further than they were seven years ago, right? And it's, it's sort of, the, the business has shifted from being a invested, fast-paced, we're gonna hit this hard over the next three to five years to, oh, you know we're doing okay, right? And we're sort and, and we're we're not we we're not going to die, but we're also not accomplishing an exit and an end game that makes anybody happy and anybody satisfied. And if you in so, what's your perspective on that? Where where you see those sort of founders and those companies that are doing okay, but they're not going to accomplish anything that anybody set out to do? Well, there's a really fine line between lumbering along and living to fight another day. So I would take it back to what your end game scenario is, right? So I was in a, a company called Information Dimensions. We were spin out of Battelle. We had a meteoric rise from zero to 30 million over a 10 year period of time. And um, uh, we splattered and hit the wall um, in, um, in half that time. And uh, it, we were we were a bit adrift for a period. Um, it was a tough, tough period uh, where we had to do everything we could to you know make payroll and to uh, continue to execute and operate on the company. And then this thing called HTML and HTTP and the internet came along, and we were unbelievably positioned. Goodness, you don't look that old. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> So, um, you know, that was a really, we, we lived to fight another day. We, we, we knew we had something special in our product that the, the problem was the, the market size was too small and the price point was too high for, peop, for most people to deploy it. So unless you had the, pro, the problem sort of in spades and you're on the lunatic fringe, that's who bought our product. And everybody else found an alternative that was cheaper and more mainstream than ours. That's a good, I can see the marketing campaign now. If you're on the lunatic fringe, raise your hand and we'll come sell to you. Yes, yes. We, we want a lot of those. But as soon as we ditched a whole piece of the product and had a browser-based system that was affordable to deploy to way, way more people than what we you know, could afford to, what customers could afford to deploy to, it was, uh, it, again, it, it completely turned around the company. So we were lumbering, right? But, but we were, we, we, we still knew we had, we had a sense of purpose. We knew we had so, still some, some great added value. Um, and we were fortunate enough to, uh, fortunate enough that we got a second chance. So let's talk about your law of sales physics. Um, and, and, and so you, you, you're, you believe strongly that 
if you can't figure the sales piece out really early, you, you, you may never figure it out, one, and two, it's gonna be probably a very lumbering, painful journey if you, if you don't figure it out early. Uh, yeah, so Bill's, Bill's law of sales physics um, is salespeople will follow the path of least resistance to the biggest piles of money. The path of least resistance to the biggest piles of money. So marketing's job, define a pile, define it as tightly and precisely as what you possibly can, and the pile's gotta be sufficiently large. It doesn't have to be infinite, but it's gotta be sufficiently large. It's gotta be addressable. You have to be able to find it, right? And then pave a path to get there in the form of messaging, you know, demonstrations, call strip, scripts, zebra spotting, you know, sales execution, all the things that you need to do. Um, you gotta define a path. But Bill, our product could be used by lots of different people in lots of di different industries with lots of different titles. Why would we want to exclude anyone as a potential prospect? Yeah, so, so if you, you, it goes back to the salespeople will find the piles, the salespeople will stray. So from a marketing side and from a product definition side, right? You want that as crisp and tight as you can possibly make it, right? Define the, the pile, define the path to the pile. Think of it, think of it, let's say there's a crosshairs on the pile. If you shine a flashlight on the crosshair, the light doesn't go just on the crosshairs, right? The light sprays. Your salespeople are gonna do that too. So your salespeople will find plenty of opportunities near the pile, and they're not gonna be perfect, and they're gonna bring them home, and you're gonna high-five them when they ring the cash register just the same as if they had brought back a deal that was squarely on the pile, right? Because their job is to find the path of least resistance to the biggest piles of money. Marketing's job, to find the pile, to find the path. But don't be frustrated when your salespeople aren't always on the path and they're astray. They're astray for a reason, right? Assuming they're good. <laughs> we also hear a lot about and people chase big markets because we're only supposed to be starting companies that can be $100 million companies or, or more, right? And so um, we often talk early on about well, we've we've got to be able to scale to that point, and we've got to be able to, we've got to figure out customer acquisition that we can acquire you know a hundred thousand users you know, and then ultimately a million users you know, et cetera, um, and and then people lose sight of the fact that of the targeting of you know who their initial user and customer can be, and they lose sight of of the fact that if you don't get ten people to love your product at the beginning, you have no chance of getting to 100 people or 100,000 people. So how do we get people to think about something, yes, broadly, that they ultimately might wanna sort of build into, but how do we get people to think more sort of local and smaller and really finitely targeted at the beginning so they can get 10 customers that love the product and then to get 20 and then to get 40, et cetera? Right. So there's, there's no rule that says you can't have mul multiple piles, right? It's a separate decision as to whether you want salespeople chasing multiple piles or not, right? Because you're, you're putting potentially choice in front of them and sometimes the paradox of choice is not, not, a, not a good thing. So nothing precludes you and it may, you may get to a point where you exhaust where you think a particular pile is and you wanna try to, to redefine that and redefine the path and, and, and be, able to, uh, be able to make adjustments. So um, ultimately, yet you do need to be able to size the pile and you need to be able to determine, right, what is a reasonable expectation for scale? What is the reasonable expectation for share in that pile, right? How much 
time and money is it going to take to go get that? And how many others see the same pile as you do? Right? Because if you see it, I'm sure lots of other people see it as well. So let's talk about building a company sort of inside of another company uh, with real, real weld and, and EWI and a very ultimately very niche product in a very niche market, um, which is okay too, which I think we also sort of shy away from because niche often means limited, right? And that's not going to be, a, you know, a TAM number of, of you know, a million. Um, it might be a TAM number of 50. I mean, there might be 50 companies in the world that are, that are make this product viable and that could be customers. Still could be a very nice business you just have to understand what the what the parameters of the business are, right? Based upon what the product is and who the potential customers are. So, how did Real Weld even come to be? What how how was that a thing, and how did you get involved in it to begin with? Uh, I went to a wake up startup, which I like to do, and sat next to Henry Cialoni, who's the CEO of EWI, and we had met each other because we uh, are in a we're at the top previously in a CEO group that meets monthly, and the ringleader of that CEO group is Charlotte Collister over there. Um, and we struck up a conversation, and he says, Bill, we've got this thing. It's mostly software. We're not really software people. You're a software guy. Why don't you come talk to us and just tell me what you think? And um, I was sort of intrigued, and he so you know, they were on the cusp of either doing a JV or funding a, a spin-out scenario. Um, one thing led to another, and Henry's a pretty persuasive guy, and the next thing I know, I was the, the CEO of Real Weld Systems. So not something I was really looking forward to, but um, caught, me, caught me at the right time. Just and couldn't resist. Couldn't resist, couldn't say no. Um, and it was a wonderful, wonderful experience, and uh, Henry and the team of EWI were great. Got to work with Kimberly, uh, who was at EWI at the time, and got to work with my son, Matt, who was uh, in welding engineering at Ohio State at the time. Um, Real Weld was in the space of welding education, so you want to think about niche, right? Um, welding education was the, was the market space. So that means... Sounds massive. <laughs> you know, that means career centers and community colleges that teach trades, including welding. So around here, that would be Columbus State, Tolls Career Center up in Plain City, Delaware Career Center, um, and I'm uh, Eastland Vocational School uh, down in Fairfield County. So those kinds of places all teach, teach welding. And... Um, it's antiquated, and um, the um, EWI has a set of premier manufacturing, the best manufacturing customers that really rely on welding, where high integrity welds. You know, did you see the picture of the crane that fell over in Miami, uh, Miami Beach? Right, you know, probably a high integrity weld. Um, that failed somewhere there, right? Or what happened at the state fair? So you know, there's a lot of businesses where welds really matter, and um, <clears throat> so those kinds of companies kept telling EWI, "We need more skilled welders. We need to be able to train welders faster, better, cheaper than what we can do now." And that spawned them to work on the problem. So they self-funded it out of a very small research budget. Um, had a technology breakthrough uh, on that, and that was about the time that I started talking to Henry. And you sort of started with the end in mind, right, in, in, in that you knew that if this was going to go anywhere, given the runway and the funds that were available, you were going to have to get some key people bought in to have this ultimately work and for it to drive the outcomes that you guys needed from it. Right. So small market. Niche market means you're gonna you need to operate on a very limited amount of capital. Right? You can't take a bunch of investor money because you're never gonna see a return on a on a smaller market. But it was important um, because whatever equipment 
you learn to weld in um, in your career center or community college, that's probably the welding equipment that you're going to have an affinity for for the rest of your life. So it's sort of like a religious Ford Chevy pickup truck thing. And um, so the end game was sort of clear that if we were successful, there would be big companies that would pay attention and care and want to have, um, have their arms wrapped around the business. And um, so we charted out, right, how could we be successful um, knowing that we need to be, you know, we need to operate on, you know, sort of a limited, limited capital budget. And uh, we, we chose the route of sort of targeted strategic customers. We knew sort of the, our end game of who would be most likely to and interested in acquiring us. And so we sort of reverse engineered from there who would be the most coveted customers that if we won, we would have the attention of those folks. And then we sort of cross-section that with who's in the Midwest that we can go drive to um, and see affordably. And um, wasn't so hard to reverse engineer because you sort of have to look at the American Welding Society and all the people that speak and sponsor and are on the board and are active in the sort of the trade. So it wasn't that hard to sort of get to the point where, you know, we could... We, we, you know, who we, we knew who we needed to go after and who we needed to go win. Did you ever, th was there any, any sort of industry or market expendability for the product? Did you ever think about, oh, well, it, it can be used to train welders. Could it also be used to train plumbers or, or pipe fitters or electricians? We, we, we had a vision that there, it, there may be another market opportunity in oral surgery. So, again... Welding to oral surgery. I mean, fine. right. It makes total sense. Yeah. Fine, you know, fine motor skill. So. Um, but you chose not to go down that path. You chose e EWI really had no interest in oral surgery. <laughs> so, and given that they were our funding source, um, yeah, we, that we, we paid no attention to that. So how, what was the real well timeline? When do you join and how long was it until you guys sold it? Um, so Henry and I chatted 30 days. We spent another 30 days drawing up a bunch of founder documents. And then from that day, it was two and a half years to the time we were acquired. And um, uh, it was a great ride. And um, uh, EWI was phenomenally supportive in that, uh, in that period. Uh, when I've, I've done several spin-outs and you know, there's this tendency of the mothership to help, help, right? You understand help, right? And sometimes help isn't help. And EWI did a great job of really uh, providing help when it was asked for um, and being very responsive, but n not, not being in the way. So how does someone that's thinking about maybe taking the entrepreneurial journey but they don't have their own idea, they haven't identified a problem, how could they sort of identify an organization like EWI that, that has the ability to sort of come up with something and to do a spin-out? And, and, and is, that, is that a reasonable path for someone who's thinking about starting a company and taking the entrepreneurial journey to hook up with an existing company to then take one of these things to market. A absolutely, right? And so it's now more part of the stated strategy of EWI. So they've got two others that they have, uh, that they have done there. Um, if you look at s some history, so what's the, what's the call, call copy? What's the, yeah. They, yeah, call copy. That, that was a residual piece of technology that nobody was paying attention to except the founder guy whose name I can't remember. Yeah, Ray. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, and he said he stuck his hand up and negotiated a deal and, and created an amazing company. Uh, Team Dynamics, same thing. A residual piece of technology there and um, that uh, they were able to turn around. So how well can you spot that from the outside and say, gee, that's a company that I want to 
be a part of, maybe I could get in on one of those spinouts. Might be a bit hard to try to conceive that, but I think there's there definitely are opportunities when people are in larger companies and there you know that there are assets that are underutilized, underappreciated, underserved, and not going to see the light of day. That you could um, you know try to try to negotiate and strike a strike a strike some kind of deal. And it's a great path forward. Uh, you know, I don't consider myself a great idea, idea kind of person. So, you know, for me, Real Weld was perfect. They had done all the hard work, and I said, "Yeah, I can strap this on and and go go execute." Well, and and sort similarly but different at OpenText, you guys sort of did a spin in, right? And and so there's the opportunity also if you're at an existing company to maybe still be entrepreneurial and, and do something like, a, you know, a, an absorption of something versus spinning something out. Yeah, so the term spin-in is normally used when you, it's all the same definition of a spin-out as you would normally think, but there is an additional clause um, that says the mothership has first rights to buy you at fair market value whatever that would mean. And, you know, you'd obviously have to do a great job of defining that. But it basically gives more comfort to the mothership because guaranteed, you know, when the mothership spins something out, you're losing control and somebody's going to complain and somebody's job's going to change and, you know... Some, some lawyer's going to get involved. Some lawyer's going to get involved. Um, but um, you could soften that a bit, right? At least the sort of is the spin-out potentially, you know, going to be a competitor to the mothership? And you can soften that a bit by um, creating this, you know, sort of a spin-back-in clause that give, gives everybody, you know, uh, gives both parties the opportunity, you know, to come back to the mothership if that's what made the most sense. At the end of the day, it's just like any contract. It's, you gotta, you got to trust the people you're dealing with and have a lot of confidence in the people you're dealing with. So you um, wear a lot of hats now, um, advisor, investor, um, company builder. What do you enjoy the most? Wh which aspect of it gets you fired up the most? Um, oh, I like people being successful. I like to see people be with successful. So I don't think I care necessarily what role you know I might have played uh, but you know watching somebody you know have a success whether that success is an end game or whether that success is just incremental you know I think I enjoy that um, probably the most uh, I probably don't have enough gas in the tank to do another startup um, I think I've convinced myself of that. There's probably a few people on the planet that might be able to convince me otherwise, right? <laughs> we just need Henry to walk in. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe, although he's tried. Um, so, uh, and so I've, sp I've spent the last two years uh, sort of expanding the portfolio boards uh, that I sit on and, uh, and you know, I've tried to focus on, you know, good, good board practices. And, and I really think it's a way for entrepreneurs, the, the more board exposure entrepreneurs can get early in their career, um, it's really, you know, really quite educational and really helps expand your, your thinking. So I had, you know, great advantage of working for a publicly traded NASDAQ company for 11 years on the senior management team and had a bunch of board exposure. And when you're publicly traded, it's all got to be by the book. And, and we were grilled to do it by the book. And we were scolded when we didn't follow the book. And, um, you know, that's really helped uh, me in being able to pass on, you know, some of those best practices. But you got to be able to temper them because what works for billion-dollar publicly traded company doesn't work for a startup. So you gotta, you got to know sort of where to temper that enthusiasm. What do you see 
entrepreneurs mostly getting right and mostly getting wrong? Just generally, you mean? Yeah. Where, where are they m most often hitting the mark? Where are they most prepared? To, and how are they you know, prepared to get something right? And where, did they, where are they missing the mark the most consistently? Um, you know, I think I'd go back to the opening question that you asked me, and I would expand your question to both entrepreneurs and boards. And I would say, ask yourself if you're spending the requisite time thinking about your external environment. Right? You're going to spend the majority of your time on your internal capabilities and your internal execution. I get that. You're going to spend a precious amount of time, smaller and precious amount of time, thinking about your external environment. And what's, so what's the right balance there? Is it, a, is it an 80-20, where it's 80% on internal operations and execution and 20% on external? Or what would you say? Or is it, does it that, vary so much by company and stage and industry that it's hard to apply a percentage breakdown to it? Uh, both, right? If you, if you need an answer, 80-20 is as good as any. And yeah, your mileage will vary. Um, so, but clearly you're going to spend more time on the internal side. And uh, when you spend time on the external side, right, ask yourself, you know, what is the change? What, where, where, what's the trending on your external environment? In, as a, take a composite view, and every three months, is the external environment more favorable, less favorable, or f neutral, right, uh, in terms of, terms of my company and my business. How can someone balance that with getting too consumed with paying too much attention to the competition? Well, it's more than competition. It includes competition, but it includes, you know, what's happening in um, sort of the you know, um, a macro, a macro world. What, what, when, when we did it at OpenText, right? Our methodology that we did is every three months we ask ourselves, what's the most significant event, positive, favorable, or unfavorable, that has occurred in the world in the last three months? What's the most significant event that has occurred in IT? What's this most significant event that has occurred in our market space of enterprise software? And what's the most significant event that has occurred internally? So four questions to ask yourselves. Only one of them was internal fo or internally focused. The other three were always, right, what, what has changed uh, out there? And then we, we, we tracked and codified every one of those events and build a timeline, and it's just like the, what's the old adage, if you take a boiling, put a frog in a pot of water and boil it, if the boi you throw a frog in boiling water, the frog will hop out, but if you put a frog in a pot of water and turn the heat on, the frog can't sense change in temperature and won't drop out. Now, I'm not suggesting that you should go try this experiment, but. Don't try this at home. <laughs> Do not try this at home. But it's the same thing, right? It's really, really hard to detect and sense and respond to change in your external environment if you don't have some structured process for reflecting on that and thinking about that. So, you know, we actually built out, you know, sort of an events timeline of all these things that we deemed significant at the time and then looked at them, right, every quarter and, and, and used that as to be able to answer that question is our external environment more favorable, less favorable, or, or neutral? Cool. Uh, if you've got a question for Bill, raise your hand. Darren, who's in the back, will get you a mic so that we can all hear your question. Uh -oh. This is going to be hard. Uh, this, one, this one appears to be a very difficult question. <laughs> Hi, Bill. It's a pleasure to be in your presence again. Um, my question is about the difference between hardware startups and software startups. You had the unique position to be part of both, where you combine the software into a hardware scenario. And we all know that venture capital doesn't fund a lot of hardware. 
and they haven't in the past, but I think that's changing. And so what I'm trying to get at is what's the environment for hardware startups in, I'll say, the Midwest? Well, on the real world side, so yeah, we had, a, we had an appliance. It was, it was a hardware-software combination. Sort of a kiosk, I'm assuming? Um, no. Um, sort of a... Um, well, uh, uh, yeah, sort of a sort of a, a welding lab or a welding booth where you would go to. You, it's a cubby where you go away and you learn to weld. You're sort of by yourself because you need to be safe and you know you're not out in the hallway or anything like that, right? So, <laughs> so it's a black box with a curtain is what I'm now picturing. Um, so it's an so the, the appliance quarter, you put a quarter in. Yeah. No, the appliance goes in the cubby, all right, or booth. And um, so it was a hard, uh, hardware-software combination. Um, and I would say I spent the majority of the time, we thought like a software company, we executed like a software company, we did release planning like a software company, we won because we thought like a software company and the targeted strategic buyers that we were looking at, the welding equipment manufacturers were old school, 100 year old equipment manufacturers. And um, I'm quite, quite, quite confident that that's why we were able to uh, execute quickly uh, is because, um, because of that. I don't know that I'm really qualified to say what I think the VC appetite is for hardware only, software only, or appliances. Um, what are you guys? I'm, what are you I'm, seeing through OTAF right I, now? I I haven't I haven't done anything personally other than software only. Um, are, you see, are you seeing more hardware companies through OTAF, or is it still primarily? Software companies. I yeah, I think it's primarily software. Is well, yes. The the, I, the good point, right? There's medical medical device stuff. Yeah, um, and um, that sort of brings with it a and a whole other kettle of fish, depending on what kinds of regulatory compliance requirements will be are, you know, that you'll have to navigate around for for that particular device. Yeah, I think the challenge with hybrid products or connected device products is you've not only got to be a world-class software company, you've also got to be a world-class physical product company, and then probably also a world-class data company because you probably have a connected device because you're trying to get the data off of the device and then have that distributed and consumed in some way. So it's hard to be world-class at anything and then when you have the challenge of being world-class in the three things to make it work, pretty, pretty challenging. So I think we've sort of brushed over how hard it is to do IoT really well because you have to be world-class at really three different companies. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great point, Ryan. And, and um, I, had, I had never dealt with a bill of materials and suppliers before, uh, the real-world experience, right? So that was... I mean, well, you just put a developer on it. Right, just call, call the developer, email the, <laughs> Slack the developer and tell them to change something and we're good. Absolutely. So uh, that's the only world I ever knew. And uh, so that was a rude awakening, a really rude awakening to have to think about that and think about volume purchases and how long is this line going to last you and is your next software going to change obsolete your hardware? And um, yeah, it's... Really, really, you've got a supply chain to now manage, right? Uh, as part of the physical product that is problematic in and of itself. Right, right. Hi, Bill. Um, you were talking about spinning out from the mothership, and it sounds like there was a right of first refusal. Was that an issue for other acquirers? Is that a disincentive for other acquirers to? Yeah, it, it, it could be. And again, that's, that's option, right? That was never the case at Real Weld. Oh, I and uh, it, it certainly wasn't the case um, of the software group at Patel that I was originally involved with. But we did a couple when I was with OpenText that were of that form. 
Um, it ended up not being a problem. And um, the reality, I would say to that, is if it became a problem, right, then um, the mothership has to give up the right. And if that's standing in the way of progress, so again, that's sort of where it gets back to, you really gotta trust the people you're doing business with and everybody's gotta be on the same page on what you're trying to, uh, what you're trying to accomplish. How much of that can you, can you negotiate and plan for up front? Yeah, you can't, you can't plan for everything, right? You, you can plan for some of the edge cases. So again, I, that's why I emphasize that. I've gotten involved in a lot of squirrely deals and, and you know, the, the ones where you're working with people that you really, you know, that are genuine and trying to do the right things and they could be tough and they could be hard, but you can still, you can, you can manage the process. Uh, where do you see the external environment for startups and tech companies, uh, say, in Columbus in the future, next one to three years, and then nationally? Well, I've, I, I'm a big fan and believer of all of the ecosystem here in Columbus. We have all the elements that we need. We have way more elements than many, many other communities have, um, including the facility we're sitting in right now, um, which is great, and uh, including a, an amazing university uh, right, right next door. So uh, I'm a big fan of the Columbus ecosystem and community. Uh, that's not to say it can't be better, because it can, it's, and it really is about ecosystem building, right? That external environment for startups is it, it is an ecosystem. Hopefully, you know, powers that be are thinking of it like an ecosystem and thinking about, okay, well, what elements of things don't we have here, right? I'd like to see us have more funds uh, at the angel stage, right? Um, I think that would be healthy for us. Um, we already na now have a few other sort of incubator tracks that you could get involved with in addition to the ones that are here. So again, I think that's great for our community um, is to provide options for, for entrepreneurs. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan and I think we can compete uh, with any ecosystem in the country. There's no reason that we can't. And um, I firmly believe that if you've got good business and good idea, you'll find good money. Uh, if that's the path you need to go down. Any final questions for Bill? Please help me thank him for joining us tonight. Thank you. He's good. Thanks for listening to this Startup Brand Columbus event podcast. We will be back next month with more entrepreneurial experiences and insights. Thanks again to our lead partners, AWH and Rev1 Ventures. Visit startupgrind.com forward slash Columbus to see our future events and to see videos of past ones. Until next time, keep grinding.